0: Hello, this is Taylor Scollin, co-host of a new Canadian business podcast called Free Lunch by the Peak, a show where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business and economics. Every week in the show, we dig into a business issue that's impacting your life, from what's going on in the housing market, to grocery supply chains, to booms and busts in tech, and we do it with some of the brightest minds from across the country. We want to give you a sneak peek into the show, so here's an episode of Free Lunch by the Peak for you to check out right now. Hope you enjoy, and if you want more, you can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms with new episodes every Tuesday morning. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm Taylor Scollin.
1: And I'm Sarah Bartnika,
0: And we're back with the first episode of 2023, kicking off the new year with an issue that we know is at the top of a lot of people's minds pretty much all the time, which is housing. And we've got a fantastic guest with us today to unpack what's going on in Canada's housing market as we head into 2023, what's driving the growing affordability crisis in the market, and what needs to be done to turn that around. Uh, Mike Moffitt is an assistant professor in the Business, Economics, and Public Policy Group at Ivy Business School and the Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute. Mike, thanks for joining us today.
2: No, thank you for having
0: me. So I think a good place to start here would just be to take kind of a high-level overview of where the housing market is today, because I think it's changed a lot since the start of the pandemic. So maybe you can just walk us through that period from 2019, 2020, until today, and um, And describe what's
2: happened and where we're at right now. Okay. So if we go back to before the pandemic, and I I know this is hard to remember the sort of before times, but uh, in in the sort of before time, we had a really hot housing market in in Southern Ontario. Um, Starting in about 2016, uh, Ontario had a, a population boom. Southern Ontario had a population boom. And it caused not just housing shortages in the GTA, but uh, this sort of phenomenon called drive until you qualify, where uh, families, uh, you can imagine a a couple living in uh, downtown Toronto and uh, a baby arrives or baby comes along the way and they're like this just ain't gonna work so they basically hop in the car and they drive as far as they they need to go in order to find uh, to find a house so what that caused was huge price increases in mar- secondary markets like kitchener waterloo and brantford and woodstock and, and london and so on so that was a context before the pandemic um once the pandemic hits uh we saw that accelerate um, we saw that there was less of a need to be in the GTA. And furthermore, with rock-bottom interest rates and people getting uh, a variety of cash through, through CERB and other mechanisms, we saw this, this massive, uh, massive price spike. And as well, we saw out-migration into other markets, particularly Atlantic Canada where we started to see prices spike in in places like like Moncton and uh, places like that that historically hadn't seen much in the way of price increases. So that's what we saw during the pandemic. The, The prices went up everywhere, but particularly in secondary markets in southern Ontario, along with Atlantic Canada. Other markets like say say Regina went up, but not nearly to the same extent. Now uh, in the last year, with uh, booming interest rates, uh, you know interest rates going going up from basically nothing up to four and a quarter percent on the overnight rate, that's caused uh, the housing market to essentially dry up in a lot of these historically hot markets where uh, not only are prices down uh, but transactions have fallen to levels that we haven't seen since the financial crisis because basically, nobody wants to buy a a house when interest rates are this high but as well because the sort of sticker price of uh houses have has gone down sellers are going to be like well i don't really want to 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 sell a house for for less that you know um for two hundred fifty thousand less than i could have got six months ago even though that's not particularly relevant because none of us have a time machine uh and can go back to those prices there's still this sort of loss aversion that that happens so in southern Ontario, we're seeing big price declines, though not necessarily any increase in affordability, because any changes in the in, in the prices are more than offset by interest rates. But what we're still seeing is increases in prices in some of these non-Ontario secondary markets. So, so Calgary and Edmonton are seeing price increases, Alberta seeing price increases, and again, a lot of that's just due to outmigration of, of young people going. I can't. I can't afford to live in a Toronto or or Oshawa or Oakville, but I can still afford uh, to get a place in a a Calgary or an Edmonton or a a St. John, New Brunswick or or St. John's Newfoundland. So, so that's what we're seeing. These really uneven markets where with price crashes in Southern Ontario and uh, prices holding steady, if not increasing somewhat in some of these non Ontario, non BC markets.
0: And just to give us a sense of, what we're talking about when we're talking about prices and affordability, how does the price to income ratio or, you know, are, are people in Alberta able to afford houses with their incomes, whereas people in Ontario aren't? Or how has that affordability metric changed, I guess, over the past couple of years?
2: Yeah. That, I mean, historically speaking, uh, you know, the target, the, the thinking had always been sort of three to one, right? That you want to get a house that's uh, three times your, your your combined sort of family income. And that's essentially dried up almost everywhere. But in, in markets, again, like a Calgary and Edmonton or a Regina or Saskatoon, you're still seeing, you know, fours and fives, like still fairly reasonable amounts at at interest rates that, you know, are higher, obviously, than we saw a year ago, but not that much different than, say, 20 years ago. So you still have a number of of markets across the uh, across the country that are quite affordable. Uh, And Quebec is a whole different story that particularly outside of Montreal, Quebec is incredibly affordable uh, relative to the rest of Canada. Unfortunately, in in markets like Southern Ontario and Lower Mainland BC, you're getting into that 12 to 15 times uh, income ratio, which has made it uh, incredibly. Yeah, it's just it's mind blowing that yeah we're we're in in double digits uh, here, which has made it essentially unaffordable. Like unless uh, you're getting help with a, a down payment from from parents or you bought meme stocks at the right time or, or that kind of thing. So for young people, (laughs) for young people in these markets, it feels like they've had to win some form of lottery, right? That either that's buying uh, some investment at the right time or a genetic lottery where they, they chose to have the right parents. So it is a, it is a huge, huge problem. And then also what we're seeing in those markets is because uh, the ownership side is so difficult, uh, that's put a lot of pressure on the rentals market. So because young people can't afford to buy a, a home to live in, they're 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 renting places. and now we're seeing across southern Ontario uh, rents go up twenty to thirty uh, percent over over last year. Um, so you know what happens in one end of the market affects the other. And you know young people, um, and I define, I'm 45, so I basically define any, young people as anybody younger than I am, uh, are, you know, feeling Thank squeezed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're it's, a, it's a moving, uh, you know, it's a moving target every, uh, every day. Course, uh, yeah. But they're, they're feeling squeezed because it's like they can't get into the ownership market. But at the same time, you know, they're paying, you know, over two grand a month for, uh, you know, a small two-bedroom apartment. And when you're doing that, it's hard to save up for a down payment. So it's, it's made it very, very difficult.
1: You also just feel a bit silly. But it's um it's interesting that you bring up the rental market. I wanna get into the regional variations that you mentioned. Um, you call out Quebec, um, the prairies are another good example. Can you help us understand why certain provinces have been able to um kind of I guess push in that price growth a bit more? We haven't seen like the the spikes or they're able to kind of maintain that in like that affordability relative to to income, what provinces are or regions are doing it well, and 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 why have they, and, and what are the reasons behind that?
2: Yeah, so so ultimately, it, it comes down to whether or not uh, housing completions are keeping up with population growth. Right, that's that, that's essentially that. It's not the entire story, but that gets you about seventy to eighty percent of the way there. So, uh, you have some markets uh, like like most of Quebec. That just haven't been growing all that fast. Uh that haven't uh you know, their populations are are pretty steady. Um so they haven't had that much trouble keeping uh keeping building up with population growth. That would have uh, that would have applied to most of Atlantic Canada prior to about a year ago or two years ago when all the Ontarians started moving in. It was kind of the, the, the same thing where where they weren't growing all that fast and that, that put a, a lid on, on rents. So those are, that's sort of one side of the market that's been able to retain affordability. The other side, I would call the fast growing population, but, but fast growing housing as, as well that they've been able to keep a, a, a lid on things. So that would be your, your Calgary's your Edmonton's to a lesser extent, Montreal um is saskatchewan as well and there's basically two models that that you can use to get there one called the kind of saskatchewan model where it's just like we've got a lot of land and if we want to build out we can we can build out and there's not you know there's not that many constraints so it's a very sprawl centric model that they're able to do in a way that say toronto can't because either if you're Toronto and you're trying to build out, you, I mean, you're either hitting Mississauga or you're hitting Lake Ontario, right? There's just nowhere, <laughs> there's nowhere you can go. Um, so, and you get that a little bit in, in Calgary uh, as, as well, but you also have this secondary uh, way like a Montreal or to a lesser extent Edmonton, that's been more on building other forms of housing. So sort of missing middle uh, kind of things where, you know, Montreal and it just jumps out in the data, like how many, families live in two to four bedroom apartments, you know, like in mid rise type apartments. And it's a housing form that doesn't really exist in, in much of the rest of the country. Uh, In Edmonton, there's less of that, but they've also, you know, focused more on building infills done things like removing uh, minimum parking requirements and that, and that kind of thing. So, so those are the two models for sort of affordability, either be somewhere that's not growing their population a lot or, Somewhere that's able to to keep their housing starts high, where in in lower mainland BC and southern Ontario, those haven't really been options. Part partly for regulatory reasons, and, and partly just for geography. Like in Vancouver, you're you're hitting the mountains and the ocean. In Toronto, you're you're, you're hitting other communities or or Lake Ontario, so that really limits uh, limits your ability to build outward.
0: So the geography, I guess, we can't really yep. do much about, but. The other side of it, the regulatory side, I want to get into that a little bit. Um, what is the role of the, the municipal government, the provincial government, I suppose the federal government uh, in setting these regulations that seem to limit new home completions um, in southern Ontario and lower mainland BC? What's the po- what policy is going on there that is preventing that supply from being built?
2: So it's, uh, it's a number of things. So again, we talk about sort of parking minimum. So we have these, you know, rules in, in places where we're trying to build like a mid-rise apartment n- near a, an LRT or subway line. And the government says, "Okay, well, you have to put in so many parking spaces." You know, developers like, "Well, we don't have the room to do that." And secondly, that kind of defeats the purpose of building these along transit lines and trying to incent people to use transit. And then all of a sudden, saying, "Okay, you need to have at least one parking spot, or if not two per per unit." So regulations like that play a role. Uh, Zoning uh, issues play a role. You know, if you look at most of our cities in southern Ontario. Um, their zone for single family homes and are only, you know, that's the only sort of form you're allowed to build, which isn't a particularly efficient use of, of land. So you have all of, all of these constraints and we're starting to see cities um, deal with those kinds of things. So, so the city of Toronto, for instance, Mayor Tory has uh, pushed through a number of reforms uh, that have been somewhat controversial, on uh, on zoning reform, on legalizing rooming houses, and, and all of these sort of alternate forms, which I think will make a, a difference. There is a provincial role as well, because one of the challenges, like let's say you're 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 Brantford or you know one of these secondary markets in southern Ontario or a Woodstocker or, or something like that, you can do all the right things on housing. You can have the perfect regulatory system. You can have a council that is pro-development and pro-development in in the right way, like not a a sprawl development, but pro-infill, pro, you know, the most urbanist uh, city council you can imagine. And all you're going to get is more people moving in from the GTA. You're never going to be able to solve your local housing shortages. So that requires provincial leadership, right? That that the province can set uh, minimum standards uh, that, that would apply to the province as a whole. And they've done some of that with with Bill 23, you know, their um, their, their, their new uh, housing bill, you know, some of which is, is good, some of which is is problematic. Uh, they have a, a housing supply uh, housing affordability task force that came out with a report back in February um, that has a number of recommendations. So it does you know, the, the province does play an important role here simply because there are 444 different municipalities. And if one or two big ones aren't doing their job, it it messes up the other 400 and some odd. The federal government has less of a role uh, to play, but they do have a $4 billion housing accelerator, which they can use to sort of buy reforms at the provincial and and municipal level. So they're less directly involved on the regulatory side, but they could, you know, they could absolutely... uh, absolutely play a role.
1: So take a step back here from I guess a perspective of a, all levels of government working together to make a certain a certain area affordable. I mean, what types of how does how does everyone work together? What is the best case Scenario for you know a, a region like Woodstock right to be able to sustain population growth that they're seeing with an adequate amount of, of housing. What are all the pieces that need to click for a region to respond well to an influx of new people?
2: Well, it's a great question, and, and, and there is a lack of coordination and a lack of, uh, of planning uh, that, that goes on, right because again, ultimately, it, it, it's allowing housing completions to keep up with population growth. So ideally, we should be uh, aligning our housing policies with the policies that affect population growth, which are things like international student rules and immigration and, and so on. And right now, those, those aren't particularly aligned, where you get the federal government just kind of an, an announcing an immigration target with, with not a whole lot of notice, which makes it difficult for uh, municipalities and provinces to s- sort of plan out if they don't know, you know, are we going to be, you know, five years from now, or, you know, is our target going to be 400,000 or 600,000? You know, they, they really don't know. And then on the international student side, which actually drives a whole lot of housing demand in, in Ontario, um, there's almost no planning what, whatsoever where the colleges and universities ultimately are the ones who decide how much enrollment uh, is, and they basically at some point just kind of tell the cities, oh, by the way, you know, we are adding 5,000 students, you know, you you sort of figure out how to deal with this. So I think ultimately right. we need to have that, that coordination uh, between all three levels of government and the higher education sector and come up with these plans, because otherwise, uh, you know, municipalities are just kind of guessing uh, how much, you know, how much housing they need and how. How that affects their uh, regulatory reform. So, and it's a classic Canadian problem that we're seeing right now in in healthcare and other areas as well, where you know different levels of government are responsible for different things and they don't always play nice with each other.
1: Well, I'm happy that you mentioned immigration because it's the question that's on like seemingly everyone's mind right now. Is can Canada support the influx of over a million immigrants over the next? three years which is the ambitious target of the federal government has set out and it's interesting that you mentioned too that um this level of government you know makes this big promise but doesn't you know isn't on the ground as much as as the other two levels of of government so uh, what is your uh what is your take on on what the answer is to that uh to that big promise and how it's going to play out
2: well, I, I certainly think it, it requires more planning um, that the way that the federal government has has gone about it is is problematic of just sort of announcing targets and going, OK, you guys figure out what, what to do uh, with this. I think it's, it's highly, highly uh, problematic. I, I think we can if, if we're smart. And I think, you know, somewhat ironically, um, it can actually help if, if we get the immigration system right. It can actually help with the housing crisis, because one of the biggest barriers, uh, to getting the houses built is a lack of skilled trades. And, Mm -hmm. and part of that is we need to change how we do, uh, immigration in in this country. So I, I, always like to use this as an example. I'm a, you know, I'm a white collar university professor, you know, who, you know, has this, uh, you know, sort of what would, the immigration system would be considered sort of a high skilled, uh, job. And, you know, people, someone with my profile who wanted to move in from uh, the United States or China or India would do very, very well uh, in our immigration system. My dad um, is a retired sheet metal worker, um, you know, who who sort of, you know, built uh, back in the 1970s, did, uh, you know, heating and cooling and duct work on apartment buildings and things like that. Guys like him don't do very well in our immigration system. Those skills aren't were considered particularly important, so I think we need to tweak our immigration system to be uh more favorable to people like my dad and less favorable to people people like me I think if we we do that um, then immigration can actually be the solution to our our housing woes and not you know not be considered uh, adding to the problem
0: on the topic of federal housing policy um you know i noticed that certain people who uh were in charge of federal housing policy spend a lot of time on twitter sort of disputing the claims that you've made about the supply issue and pitching this as more an issue of speculative investment and people buying up properties that they're not necessarily living in basically a demand side problem uh what do you think the is there a validity to that like what is the do they i guess do they accept the the premise that there is a supply problem in our housing market
2: yes there are there are some that that you know outright deny it and i i can't i cannot for the life of me under understand that just from a, a strict sort of logic point of view where it's like okay we're increasing immigration targets by 60 percent but that shouldn't change the rate at which we build housing like i just i just you know it's not even an economic thing it's just sort of a math thing where it's like okay the population is growing faster than our housing needs should but i i do you know i i don't dispute that there's a lot of speculation going on and i actually don't see those as competing explanations but 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 rather uh they go hand in hand right that if we create think about any time there's a shortage or perceived shortage it attracts speculation, right? Like when we thought, you know, at the beginning of COVID, we were going to run out of toilet paper. Everyone went out and bought toilet paper, right? Every time, uh, you know, and you just name it. Any time where there's a perceived shortage, that attracts speculators. And that's Mm -hmm. why we see this difference around the country, right? Because I go, okay, well, if this is all about greed, then, you know, why is it that prices in Woodstock are, are going through the roof and prices in Regina aren't? Like, are people in Woodstock just inherently more, more greedy Are uh, you know, these, these sort of overseas investors, you know, they love Woodstock, but they hate Regina. Like, well, like what is going on here? Well, the answer is one's a speculative asset and one isn't, right? That that one has a supply shortage and one doesn't. So that's you know I don't see that as being um, these complete competing explanations. And in, in fact, you know I, I see them going hand in hand. And you know I, I, I'm f- fine with um, w- with things that reduce uh, speculation, right? So there are you know there's talk about uh, having um, you know, cracking down on you know overseas investments and you know having a beneficial registry ownership uh, system and things like that. I'm you know I think all of those are beneficial things, but I think ultimately we have to realize that th- those are fighting the symptom; they're not fighting the underlying cause. How bad
0: is the shortage right now? Like, if we were trying to quantify it, how many more houses do we have to build in BC, and Ontario, and other places where there's a deficit to? get back to some sort of balance in the market
2: Yeah, and there's there's a few different studies uh a few different studies on this um and i'll look at at the ontario example like the cmhc says that that we need to build over 2 million over over 10 years which um in order to hit uh the affordability levels of of 20 years ago which was kind of a, a golden era for for affordability um which, which, which may be true, and I think that's, you know, that's quite a lot. Uh, the Housing Af- Affordability Task Force said that we need $1.5 million, you know, in Ontario. Uh, we at, at SPI, we decided to road test that because actually, you know, we went into this project thinking that that $1.5 million was was an overestimate. Like, we thought it was bad, but we didn't think it was quite that bad. And much to our surprise, uh, we were able to generate a similar estimate. What we did was basically say, okay, how many houses would we need over the next 10 years to get Ontario's supply level Um, up to where the rest of the country is, or both Ontario and BC supply level up to, up to the rest of the country, taking into account that, you know, you've got differences in population size, but also population age, right? That, a that a eight year old needs has a different housing needs than a 48 year old. So you, you know, you have to take these demographic things into account. And sure enough, we found the answer was 1.5 million. And we basically, you know, 1.1 million of that is going to come from anticipated population growth. And about 400,000 comes from existing shortages. Now, that's just kind of a a rough estimate. And obviously, we have to understand that a unit is not a unit that, you know, if you've got uh, a small studio apartment, that's not going to fit as many people as a you know a, a, as a you know 2000 foot uh, square foot home but but overall that's that's what we're looking at and to put that challenge into context right this 1.5 million number which has been adopted by the province we have not in this province built even half that many homes 750,000 homes in any 10 year period since 1973 to 82 So we haven't done the. So basically, what we have to do is something we haven't done in forty years, and then double it. (laughs) So this is a massive, massive challenge, and I'm not sure how we how we get there. So you know, identifying the problem is the first step. Now we got to figure out how to solve it.
1: So what comes out of this? Because you look at that, you know, that two thousand dollar a month renter that you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation. So what do we? How does this shake out for? For, for people, are we going to see mass kind of interprovincial migration? Is there going to be a big shakeup? Like are people going to move across the country to, you know, get to markets where housing is more affordable? I mean, what are what are the what are some of the I guess the what are some of the shifts that we're going to see at like a population level?
2: Yeah, so I, I think there's there's a couple things that that, that could happen that could um not solve so much, but basically be sort of unintended consequences of this. So I do think at some point international enrollments are going to tail off simply because in Ontario and, and British Columbia, simply because those markets have gotten too expensive. And I think uh, colleges and universities in other provinces are going to say, "Hey, yeah, you can move to Toronto, but it's going to cost you, you know, this much to live. But if you know, you can do the same thing." You know, you could do the same thing in Saskatchewan for for half the price. So, I do think we're going to see this shift in international enrollments where they're going to go into less expensive markets. The second one is that I do expect to see more young Ontarians move to other provinces. And the last data we have, uh, the last quarter we have data for is the second quarter of, of 2022. And on we had record number amount of out migration from Ontario to other provinces, particularly Atlantic, Canada and and Alberta. And it, it's simply because of that housing that that with the advent of work from home, it's a lot easier now to keep your job in Toronto, but do it from uh you know, do it from Glace Bay or or wherever you, you, you want to uh, want to be. So I think that's going to continue. And we're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing the Alberta government put ads on the TTC trying to attract people to come to Alberta. Now, there was a Toronto life story about uh, somebody who moved from Edmonton and didn't care for it so much. And that's gone kind of viral on social media. And I feel I feel bad for this poor woman because she's dealing with all all kinds of abuse out of that. But 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 I do I do think that that is going to be a thing, but it is going to be challenging for people right there was like i remember during the the pandemic there were these memes videos on tiktok about you know somebody moving out to rural new brunswick and asking their neighbor where the nearest whole foods is and they're like uh yeah i think (laughs) i think it's in montreal you know and it's like why can't why can't why can't i get uh same day delivery from amazon here it's like well because you kind of moved out in the middle of nowhere so there is gonna be you know i think there are going to be young people who are going to do it some will like it and for others there there will be a bit of a cultural shock
0: Do you think, uh, for those of us who are on the sidelines of the housing market, that higher interest rates have any uh, promise of restoring some sort of affordability? I know you mentioned earlier that it really, you know, prices have fallen a bit, but the higher cost of borrowing basically offsets any advantage there. Is there any uh, chance that the prices will fall? You know, significantly enough, just on the back of tighter monetary policy and higher borrowing costs, to make houses affordable again, or is that basically impossible with the shortage?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know if it's impossible. I think we we could have uh, a, a period where interest rates stop going up, but but prices continue uh, to fall. Uh, so so it's it's certainly possible, and even right now that that although the, you know the monthly payments have risen, you know gone uh, stayed the same or risen a bit because the sticker price is lower it does mean that the the sort of down payment that you need to make is is lower which which does have some benefits there is a, a possibility that over the next 6 to 18 months that we go into a recession um, that overall uh some of some of these investor speculators who bought up multiple properties are feeling a little bit over leveraged, not able to make those payments and and start dumping uh dumping homes. So I think there is the the possibility in the short term for an increase in affordability. Uh my concern is more the sort of the the longer, like the five to ten years out, right? That. Um, you know, the, the long run outlook looks to be less affordability unless something, unless something big changes, either on the international student side, or we just get really good at building homes. But yeah, I do, I do think there is a very real possibility of, uh, of some short-term instability in the housing market, which will create, uh, affordability for first-time home buyers.
1: Is there any, is there a level of risk that you'd assign to the possibility of a kind of an 08, you know? in America style foreclosures or things of that nature, or or does that uh, scenario feel a little bit extreme at this time?
2: It's possible that the the dynamics in Canada are a little bit different than the the United States. um, You can essentially sort of walk away from your morning. You basically just hand your keys back uh, to the bank and, and say like, look, I'm, I'm underwater. You, 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 you take that back here outside of, I believe Alberta, that's not, Possible, right? That 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 you're still you're still on the hook for these things. So I I do think uh like like unless, unless there's a, a personal bankruptcy and then you know then there's a whole adjustment process that that goes on. But it is certainly possible that you you find yourself or, or people investors find themselves so underwater that they are starting to declare bankruptcy and some of these homes are are going on the market. So I, I you know I, I I do think that's possible. Um, where I, I think it would be different than us in the 08 is I don't think it creates the same level of systemic risk. Like, I don't, I don't think the big five banks at that point start to find themselves in, in, in trouble. Okay. So, um, so on the individual level, yeah, I could see something like that happening on more of a systemic risk level. Uh, like I don't, you know, we're not going to have a wave of things where, you know, one day it's just like, we wake up and, you know, Washington mutual doesn't exist anymore. Like it didn't 8. like it's, it's going to be a very different dynamic.
1: I think it's interesting to talk about this in the context of seeing these stories come out about you know so many uh, mortgage holders kind of hitting their their trigger rates um, where most of their payments are are going towards interest and not the principal loan amount or kind of seeing that a lot of you know people have their their variable rates up for adjustment pretty soon. Are those um, are, are those percentages which which seem quite scary a real risk as well or is um, or, or are there, or do you think that there's a chance that homeowners are going to come out of this, um, I guess, relatively unscathed compared to the amount of stories that we're seeing that would, you know, that are kind of ring alarm bells around those, around those, um, around those topics.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think it's a real, uh, I think it's a real risk, both on the, on the variable rate market and as well, you had a lot of people, um, you know, back in say 2020 or 2021, lock in on a on a 2 or 3 year fixed and those are starting to 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 roll over um, you know, I have the worst of, of all worlds because my rolls over next summer. But it was a five-year fix from 2018, so I never got any of the uh, savings. Um, <laughs> but 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 you so uh, but you know, but I, it's certainly something that I'm I'm thinking about is like, okay, what what's this market going to look like uh next summer? And I do I do think it is uh, a, a real risk for people, and it'll be interesting to see how this how this plays out. Like, are they going to uh, are they going to try and sell? Is this going to cause a wave of personal bankruptcies? Or are they going to go, okay, well, I, I still want to, you know, I can't really get out of this place, so could I rent out a room, given that, or, you know, rent out part of the house, given that, uh, you know, the rental market, uh, you know, is going through the roof in, in these places? So. I'm not exactly sure how this is going to play out, but I I do know that there are going to be a lot of uh, a lot of families and a lot of uh, investors who are in a very uncomfortable position next year and are going to have to make a number of um, number of tough decisions. And I think as well that this has sort of macroeconomic impact. Uh, because even if they're keep, finding ways to keep their homes and, and paying at least sort of massive stream of interest, well, that's money that they're not, you know, pumping into the rest of the economy. So, which is kind of what the bank of Canada is expecting with these rate hikes in the first place, right? That, that, that they're, they're seeing that as the mechanism to cool down the economy going, okay, well, you know, one way we can ratchet down consumer spending is to, to raise interest rates and that's going to cause households to, uh, to cut back on their spending
0: i'm I'm interested in this uh dynamic of housing specifically in Canada's economy and how it seems to dominate such a large share of our economy and personal economic choices that people make, including where to live, which obviously impacts your job prospects and all these things and I saw on Twitter this morning someone talking about maybe maybe it was you Mike mm-hmm. talking about how uh young people moved into crypto, uh, perhaps instead of saving for a down payment, because it seems like the only way you're ever going to be able to afford a home is if you win some sort of lottery and crypto is a place to maybe roll the dice. Um, What are the sort of secondary economic effects of a housing market like this that we don't talk about as much?
2: Yeah, so I think I think there are a few of them. So, so one of them is it does increase uh, the the type of investments that that young people with uh, with a bit of uh, income make. So uh, there's a there's a, a, a term I can never remember exactly what I say but they're called Henrys. They're like high earners, uh, but not 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 rich, not yet. rich yet. Yeah, so the the Henrys uh, See, not co- rich yet yeah yeah high yeah high earners not rich yet henry's it it absolutely and there's research you know so i was quoting some research out of the united states that it does cause henry's to make riskier investments than they otherwise would uh because they're going okay you know at, at at the current rate that i'm saving you know it's going to be you know 15 20 years before i'm able to to have a, a down payment and you know i'd like to you know, I'd, I'd like to own a, a home before I'm, you know, 45 or, or whatever. So, yeah, absolutely. It causes it causes the Henry's to to act in, in riskier ways. So that, that's the first one I see. Second one is it does cause it, go, it does cause frictions where it, it does sort of force people out of um, out of really dynamic economic markets into sort of secondary markets where their job opportunities are more limited. Right. So it's like, okay, I'm not if I'm not in the GTA and I'm not physically there every day, you know, and I'm not going to events and meeting people and building that social network, it does it does make it harder for me to climb a a career ladder. So that would be the second one. The third one, I've got, uh, I've got a piece coming out with Ken cool about this soon, as soon as I can finish editing it. And poor, poor Ken's been waiting on me for this forever. But one of the big things it, it causes is it causes people to get married and have children later, um, and you actually see that in the birth rate. That you know, places with high, you know, rising real estate prices, people have their first child later in life. They have fewer children and more and a higher proportion of the population uh, ends up just just not having children at all. So it, it has, you know, it has effects on the birth rate. Right. It it, it affects the ability of uh, of young people to, to, to form those families. And, you know, that, you know, that has consequences 20 to 30 years down the road where, you know, you worry about that aging population because, you you essentially almost get this perverse form of like a one child policy, but it's it's happening through the mm-hmm. uh, happening through the housing market. So so that is a sort of another um, a, another consequence that I, I don't think gets nearly enough attention.
1: There's a there's a there's a few things too. I mean, we've seen I think there's numbers that have come out of the UK and the US about people moving home at record rates as well. And I don't know if there's numbers on this as well but i assume that there's uh, also that reliance on maybe a dual income component as well when it comes to housing so interesting how this plays out in people's in, in people's day-to-day day-to-day lives and i guess on that point too i i wanted to understand a little bit in the context of rising interest rates and talking about housing and maybe people offloading homes at at the point which at which they can't afford it anymore um what are, what rents are, as you mentioned above, you know, they're at record rates. They're sitting at above $2,000 right now nationwide. Are there any immediate effects that we're going to see it play out in the rental market in the short term?
2: Yeah, so I'm I'm not seeing much in the way of uh, of relief on, on the rental side. That that you know we we may see rental stock go up a little bit again because people are, are are selling these homes and they're getting turned into rental properties. But unless you know something strange happens again on the on the international student side, or you get this sort of mass exodus out of Lower Mainland BC and Southern Ontario to other provinces. I don't. I just. I don't see a lot of rent relief happening, and I do think one of the one of the things that that might shake out of this again with people putting their um, their, their homes up for sale because they find themselves underwater is. I think a lot of those homes will get bought up by by REITs and 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 other investors who, uh, like unlike the, the the mom and pop investors, are a little less sensitive to uh, you know month to month and year to year variations in prices. So you know, I think that is one of the potential risks here is that that a growing portion of our housing stock ends up getting bought by institutional investors because they're, they're sensing an opportunity that, you know, they, you know, they, they have entire teams that, that do that sort of same demographic work that I am. They're seeing the same, you know, long run, uh, long run potential. So they're you know, for them, uh, a small recession that drives down the housing market is a massive buying opportunity. And I wouldn't be surprised to see those institutional numbers, uh, go up significantly, uh, should we have a recession. So
0: this problem seems uh, fairly intractable in the sense that it requires coordination of so many levels of government, like we've talked about. It requires existing homeowners to lose some of the value of their homes if they're going to be cheaper for other people to buy. Um, Is there any precedent for other jurisdictions digging themselves out of a hole like this? And uh, what would that look like? I mean, what has anyone done this successfully?
2: yeah well, not uh, not in a while though we are seeing some country like New Zealand, for instance, you know historically had had uh, uh, a housing market that it was was even sort of scarier uh, than ours and they've they've spent a lot of time on reform and, and things are getting better there. We're seeing California make some some big reforms so it is it is possible, and you know I think I think the model. For for us, you know, where we were able to to deal with this was was after World War II, right? Where we had this massive sort of population growth of all the soldiers coming back and the baby boom and and, and things like that, and you know, built massive amounts of homes f- fairly quickly. Some of that was uh, some of that was on the private side. Some of it was was financed by the federal government through through the CMHC. So it's certainly possible, right? And we have we we have seen this historically before. But you know, it's 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 going to take a few things. Like like it's it's going to take uh, politicians who, you know, sort of understand the magnitude of the problem. And it's one thing to just say, yeah, we need 1.5 million homes, but then go, okay, well, what does that actually mean? Um, you know, so big reforms on on the zoning side, big reforms on the labor side to get more people in the skilled trades. Uh, We need to be more productive in the way that we build homes, that the way that, that we build most homes really isn't that much different than when my dad was doing it back in the 1970s right? But we don't build cars the same way we did in the 70s or anything else. So, you know, there's some interesting designs, uh, you know, areas out there to look at through 3D printed homes to the use of mass timber for, for mid-rises. So there's a lot of interesting technologies there that we could we could scale up using, using government policy. So I, I think it is it is possible. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't want to sound too much like a defeatist. I, I do think there is a pathway uh, to success here, but it's going to, you know, we are going to have to make some, some tough decisions in a way that we historically haven't really wanted to in this, in this country or, or this province.
0: Okay. Well, I'll take it. That sounds like, uh, a little bit of optimism for us that Sarah, maybe someday we'll be able to buy a house
1: someday. Maybe I think, I think this is a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, Mike.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah and thank, thank you, you for man. for the, talking about this this topic. Uh, it's the more you know, the more that we can discuss it and, and actually talk about solutions. I, I think is is, is fantastic because otherwise, you can just get so overwhelmed by the depth of the problem that uh, it doesn't generate anything but but pessimism. Well, Sarah, that was
0: fascinating conversation with Mike. Uh, I had a feeling it would be great just based on following Mike on Twitter. Great follow at Mike Moffat if you are on Twitter. Um, but so knowledgeable about the subject and a lot of interesting things to say. there. There's a lot of threads to pick up, I think. Um, I appreciate the the optimism at the end. That's always a good place to leave things. But I kind of got the sense from the conversation that it's an immense problem and an immense challenge that uh you know we've we have not done before like just the math has never been accomplished before of building in ontario alone one and a half million new homes over a time period like that like we've never even gotten close um so it did leave me a little bit concerned about uh the prospects for solving this problem i don't know what did you think
1: it i agree with the Concern it is anyone who is keeping up with the news, which I think most young people are because the house, housing market is such a, you know, fascinating place to put your attention and, and watching the swings in it. But we see these kind of these big numbers, right? That, that, that come out. And I think we mentioned some of them in this call, like the 1.5 million homes that we're short of like the million plus uh, influx of, of immigrants that we're expecting, the interprovincial flows that we're kind of seeing that are changing um, regions day by day. And it was really helpful to have someone come on that could kind of unpack those numbers and put them into a bit of context. And then the knowledge coming out of it as well that Mike highlighted was just things that I don't think we we thought about as well. I personally didn't really think about immigration as being an opportunity in the way that he spoke about it yeah. and the call out to right that the immigration system that we have here set up actually kind of works against our goal in a way of getting more houses built because the people that actually have the expertise the skills the know-how to be able to maybe innovate our housing uh, our construction industry rather, uh, a bit, uh, are exactly the ones that are, are going to be getting shut out of this system. And meanwhile, right. The high earners, the ones that will, you know, maybe be, uh, the ones looking for homes like this are, 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 are being, uh, are the ones that are being, uh, welcomed in through the system. So that piece was interesting too.
0: Yeah. Given all the, the inputs into what makes the housing market tick, uh, you know, with immigration, with birth rate, stuff like that, it does seem like an area that could use a little bit more planning and coordination uh, by different levels of government. But like so many other problems in this country, I'm thinking of the healthcare system specifically, uh, you know, there does seem to be a problem of different levels of government working well with each other. And, you know, basically trying to pass the buck onto someone else to make those difficult decisions. Um, But I'll remain hopeful that someone will take up the challenge at some point.
1: You're right. Me too. It's interesting because it is the, the same theme that plays out really that lack of coordination. But in this case, it happens to be playing out in this sector that is deeply personal. You think of real estate as kind of this faraway thing, but Mike also touched on how it affects our personal kind of day-to-day decisions, right? Whether or not someone moves to the big city or not, whether they move in with their parents mm-hmm. or not, whether they um, are moving in with a partner or not, these these things really do impact us, us day-to-day. And so having that emphasis on the level of co- coordination that's needing it and remaining optimistic about it, I think is the only way to to go about it because it's so important.
0: Yeah, personal and broader economic Uh, impacts as well. I mean, what is the effect, like Mike was telling us, his business students at Ivy now spend a lot of time thinking about speculating in the housing market. What is the effect of having all these people going through MBAs, spending their time thinking about how to flip homes? I'm not saying that that's necessarily what they're doing, but obviously that's become a path to making money in this country rather than starting a business or doing something that might be a little bit more socially productive. It's how can we you know, get a bit of return by buying a property and selling it two years later. Uh, That doesn't seem like a good use of our, our human resources as a country.
1: Definitely, definitely not. Well, I'm excited to have uh, Mike on again, because like he said, too, there's going to be a lot that shakes out in the next six to 18 months. I don't know if anyone can really anticipate what the market is going to look like and how this is going to, um, affect uh, homeowners and then the economy at a broader level. But we just kind of have to kick back and, and watch how things play out.
0: Okay, well, should we leave it there for now?
1: I think so. This has been another episode of Free Lunch. My name is Sarah Bartnika. You can follow me at Sarah Bartnika.
0: And I'm Taylor Scalin. You can follow me on Twitter at Taylor Scullin.
1: And you should subscribe to our free daily business newsletter, The Peak. You can find us at readthepeak.com. And you can find future episodes of this podcast by searching free lunch by The Peak, wherever you listen to podcasts.